Evan Lazar here, Patriots insider and host of the Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Network. As always, our content is powered by our exclusive wagering partners, betonline.ag. Use the promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your welcome deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. New edition of the Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Podcast Network and on Patriots Press Pass. I'm Evan Lazar. Joined, as always, by Alex Barth, an early edition of Patriots Beat here on Thursday due to Game 6 between the Celtics and the Warriors at TD Garden tonight at the NBA Finals. Alex is going to be there for the sports hub covering the Celtics game, so that's why we're doing this a few hours early. We're going to have a very special guest on later on in the show to talk Warriors Celtics during the Boston Sports Minute with us in just a little bit. But we're going to talk some Patriots here at the top of the show. And as we were off the air yesterday and uh, in between podcasts here on Tuesday and Thursday, our schedule, the Patriots did sign a wide receiver, bringing in Lil Jordan Humphrey, formerly of Texas, the New Orleans Saints, obviously has spent most of his career there with New Orleans and a player that had some intrigue coming out of the draft in 2019, a six foot four, big bodied, another outside contested catch receiver, kind of like Devonte Parker and Nikhil Harry. Uh, speaking of Nikhil Harry, Alex, what do you make of the Patriots signing little Jordan Humphrey, a player that at the time of the 2019 draft, I thought, okay, if they go later on in the draft at wide receiver, this might be a guy they, they could be interested in. Yeah, first off, it's Lil, not Little. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I I liked him a lot coming out that year. He he didn't do much his first two years. Had a breakout year in 2018. Caught 90 balls, 1100 yards. Yeah, I you know he was very raw again. He didn't play a ton in college, so I thought he was very raw. I haven't watched him closely with the Saints. I'm not sure where his development's at, but. He's still relatively young. I mean, I still kind of see him as a project player, as a guy who can maybe get better. They, they've they needed size in the wide receiver group for, for a while. You know, I, I think he's probably somebody, you know, as it's relevant to the Patriots, where does he fit in? He's probably somebody who competes for that last spot, right? If they're going to keep yeah. a sixth receiver, we've talked about Trey Wilkerson in that spot. Or sorry, Trey Nixon, Christian Wilkerson. We've talked about both of them in that spot. If they decide they want to go size with that spot, you know, Devontae Parker gets banged up a lot. They want insurance there. They want another big outside guy, a red zone guy. He could, you could maybe kind of see him as a third tight end if they're only going to keep Johnny Smith and Hunter Henry. He might give you some de facto depth there. I could see him being in the competition. Now, if that's not what they want, if they want the extra slot receiver, it's Trey Nixon. If they want the special teams, it's Christian Wilkerson. That's what hurts me with this one. I'd love to say Jordan Humphrey has a solid shot to make the team. He doesn't play special teams. He last yeah. year was his career high in special team snaps. I think he played about 17% of the Saints special team snaps last year. That's not a significant amount. So that doesn't mean he can't do it. Maybe they get him going. He obviously has the size to, you know, be a factor covering kicks. He he has some speed to be able to get down the field and cover kicks. He just hasn't done it, but he, he'll be a name to watch. I mean, I, I think he's an NFL caliber player. I don't know that he's a starting caliber player. I think he's a, you know, back end of the roster good depth, red zone, situational guy. I think he does provide some value there, but they have a lot of guys like that. And would they rather have the speed of Trey Nixon again or the special team skills of Christian Wilkerson? That's what it's going to come down to. Yeah, honestly, I look at this move as maybe a precursor to Nikhil Harry eventual departure here from New England because you talk about Devontae Parker in that starting big X role. If they're going to have a backup to Devontae Parker and it's not going to be Nikhil Harry, a little Jordan Humphrey 
comes in and is sort of that skill set, right? That could potentially serve as a backup in that type of role. You mentioned maybe like a move tight end sort of look at him as well. I remember at Texas, he did run some vertical routes out of the slot. Maybe that could be a different look that he could get as well to get some matchups against linebackers and safeties and just play basketball in the middle of the field with those guys. He's somebody though, coming out of Texas, I remember studying his tape and his feet and his wiggle, I guess, for lack of a better term is a little bit better than what you would expect for a six foot four guy. And I checked in with Nick Underhill who used to cover the Patriots now covers the saints full time down in new Orleans. And he said that little Jordan Humphrey has his moments, right? He's somebody that has flashes that almost looks better than he actually is. Right. Like he, he has right. moments where you're like, Oh, this guy could actually become something in the NFL, still trying to figure out how to use his size at the NFL level, how to truly be that contested catch artist at this level. Maybe Devontae Parker is is the perfect guy to get some of that out of him and teach him the ropes in that respect a little bit as well. But New Orleans, they they wanted him back. They 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 were interested in in re-signing him and having him back. He wasn't healthy. He was working on getting healthy, and they actually were entertaining bringing him back, but it didn't happen. So I think that there's some – Nikhil Harry ties to this move, right? I I could definitely see this being a precursor to them saying we need another big body guy on the outside. Now we have one in case Devontae Parker goes down and we still want to use that role in some capacity. Obviously not a burner. He ran a really slow 40 time. He doesn't bring any sort of speed, uh, but he does have that size and that ability to go above the rim and and play big. And, And maybe they feel like they needed another version of that because Nikhil Harry is not going to be here. The one thing it's not that they've acquired small wide receivers, but they've definitely gone a little bit more finesse with their wide receiver signings right. and acquisitions over the last couple of years. You know, Tyquan Thornton is six feet, six foot one. He's not small. Uh, Kendrick Bourne, Nelson Aguilar. It's not, we're not talking about Wes Welker. We're not talking about five foot eight, five foot nine receivers, but none of those guys are necessarily known for their contested catchability either. Right. So that's, again, it comes down to what do they want to do with that last spot? What do they want to do with that depth spot? It's, it's a, you know, like you said, during the draft, it's kind of a flavor thing. He is a little redundant to Harry. I agree with you, but he's going to cost significantly less, which is probably why they made yeah. this move. Yeah. Also somebody, as is everybody now, practice squad eligible. That's a nice practice squad player too. If oh you can, yeah. If you can get him on the practice squad work scout team as well, not only just, being able to potentially back up Parker, but you could also have him mimic some of the other bigger receivers that you're going to have uh, that you're going to go up against the six foot three, six foot four guys on other teams. Now a little Jordan Humphrey could potentially play a scout team role or something like that on, on the practice squad as well. So not sure he makes the roster, but definitely a scout team option in a, a practice squad option for the Patriots. If he doesn't make the 53 uh, really quickly in the chat before we Go back, go to our throwback Thursday segment, Alex. Uh, any belief to Julian Edelman leaving the door open? No, no he's, there? he's trying to sell something. I don't know what it is. Yeah. He just, it wouldn't make any sense at this point. No. Yeah, Mike Giardi threw out there on Twitter yesterday that he retired because of the, the bone on bone in his knee. That doesn't just go away with right. rest. You know, I, I I don't know. I I tend to agree with you that in order to keep people on the hook, in order to p- keep people interested in the brand that is Julian Edelman, 
you, you got to tease a, a, a comeback every once in a while. Everybody does it, right? I, how many right. athletes do this all the time? And it, it stinks that that's the game, but that is the game that a lot of them play. And no, I, I'm with you. I, I don't think that there's any sort of credence to him actually coming back and uh, playing for the Patriots ever again. All right. So let's debut this segment, a new off season uh, segment for us here on Patriots beat. We're going to do what we call throwback Thursday. Cause it is Thursday where we're going to go through some of the Patriot greats of the last 20 plus years or so and break down some tape talk about those players and just reminisce uh, about what great Patriots and great football players there were uh, today. We're going to start with Patriots hall of fame inductee for 2022 Vince Wilfork. We're also going to get to Richard Seymour since he's going to go to the pro football hall of fame. And then we're going to open it up to you guys and hear who you guys want us to break down and talk about. But let's start with big Vince. And I pulled up a bunch of plays uh, courtesy of, of our friend fear the beard on Twitter. Uh, you can see his little, his handle there at the bottom. One of the better Twitter follows for Patriots fans looking for Patriots. Let's just highlights. make sure let's give him credit. Let's make sure that that's what his, uh, his current still is. is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. He, he does get shut down by Twitter a lot. <laughs> so we, we can go make sure and give him credit, but I, he was the one that put up this sequence of plays from the 2011 uh, AFC championship game here uh, between the Ravens and the Patriots, which was, Easily one of Vince Wilfork's best games in a Patriot uniform. I think one of the things that stood out just going through the tape of Vince and pulling some of these highlights that we're going to go over here was what he talked about when we spoke to him following the induction uh, or the news when it broke that the Patriots were going to induct him into the Patriots Hall of Fame. And that was his versatility, like he lines up everywhere in this game, right? Like it's not right. just on the nose. It's not just over the center. Uh, he's playing five technique. He's playing the shade. He's playing the nose. He's playing just about everywhere on this uh, defensive line. Excuse me. The pass rush ability really stands out. And then towards the end, easily one of the best at anticipating quick throws or screens out of a defensive lineman, especially nose tackle that I've ever seen. We'll see the interception against the Chargers. I went back and watched it. That's not even a screen. That's just like a, a flare into the flag. No, yeah, he just read it. Yeah, that he just reads. Just a fantastic all-around force in, in the way that he plays. This one here, though, we're going to start with a, a third down play. Having a 300 and sometimes listed 325, I think he was closer to 400 pounds, honestly, at times when he played. Let's call him 375. But having a 375-pound defensive tackle that can stay on the field in all situations and on third down and rush the passer in this shotgun formation against Baltimore, it's pretty rare, right? And I, I think that a lot of people forget just how much juice uh, Vince had mostly as a bull rusher, pocket pusher, uh, but he certainly could bring it in the pass rush as well as against the run. Yeah, no, I mean, he was, again, we kind of talked about this during the draft, right? That, you know, everybody's saying, well, you know, why would you take a nose tackle high? They can only play two downs. So obviously, this is a different era in the yeah. game when Vince Wilfork played, but it's he kind of is a, a trailblazer, and he's the kind of guy, if he was in today's game, maybe even valued more highly than he was playing when he did. These guys just don't exist. You don't find these, you know, you said 375. I think the number I've heard is he was like around 345 when he was in his prime. Yeah. You don't find guys that big who can move like he can. And it just creates so many unique mismatches. And Bill Belichick spoke a little bit about this when Vince got, 
you know, into the when he got inducted in the Patriots Hall of Fame, and you'll see some of it. I don't remember if it's this exact play, but as we go through this, his ability to to create mismatches and just move, he might not have been the one actually making the play, right? He might not yeah. show up in the box score, but we're going to go through plays where somebody gets a tackle for loss six yards in the backfield, but it's because Vince was able to move three guys out of the way. Yeah, that, like, that's, that's what this play is like, yeah. Right, so, and then you could also apply that to, to the pass rush. He was able to occupy guys in the pass rush and open things up for guys. I mean, so many players he played with, Willie McGinnis, Chandler Jones, you know, I could name 15, 20 different edge rushers, but that's 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 what it is. You don't see defensive tackles of his size that could, you know, force the offense to focus on him, right? Because if you're that big, normally you can't move. Maybe you need two guys to block him, but the, the, that guy's going to be where he is, and that's that, right? That wasn't the case with Vince. You had to, you know, we, we talk about it all the time, like in the secondary, you know, you needed to know where Ed Reed was, yeah. right? Or even at linebackers at times, right? Now, when when the Patriots played the Cowboys this year, we did a lot of, you need to know where, where Micah Parsons is, right? Yeah. You don't really do that. You don't really hear that with defensive linemen. I don't even know that you hear that with Aaron Donald, probably because he doesn't line up in that many different spots. But Vince Wilfork's versatility and his athleticism, he was a defensive lineman where teams needed to know where he was before each play and then keep an eye on him because he would move around and he could really cause problems. Yeah, so on this play, this is a pass rush play. He's right here, uh, over right uh, shaded to the left side of the center. And you look at the bookend pass rushers on this play. It's throughout this game. It's Rob Ninkovich on one side, but it's Mark Anderson on the other oh, side. Mark Anderson. Mark Anderson name. had a huge season. Remember, he had and then ripped off the Buffalo Bills. He's a legend. Yeah, he had double-digit sacks, and what you see I think it was is twelve and a half, right? Just walking back the left guard here, all the way back into Joe Flacco. And you see him just put this guy on skates, Alex. And yeah, this is a one-on-one and you can't block Vince one-on-one. And then obviously Mark Anderson comes in and cleans up the sack. You mentioned how many times Vince occupied blockers or guys cleaned up. Mark Anderson was the cleanup sack king, right? Like how many of these types of sacks did he get in this season? But I just love watching big Vince bull rush the left guard here and watch him just put him on skates and walk him right back. And that's a Vince Wilfork sack, right? Like that's not a, that's not a Mark Anderson sack. That's a Vince Wilfork in your face type of sack right there. Yeah, I, that that second angle, a great look at. I don't know, can is it just glitchy? Is this what we're doing, or can is you it play it straight through? It's showing up a little glitchy to me. I want to take a second to shout out our friends at BetOnline.ag. It's the NBA Finals, the Celtics. Go seize. Maybe you want to place a bet on Jason Tatum and the hometown team. Our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's NBA Finals, Go Celtics, the NHL Hockey Conference Finals, Major League Baseball scores, and all the latest fighting news and even next season's early NFL futures. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sporting wagering information from live betting to playoffs, esports, and more. Head to the website or use your mobile device today to sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code CLNS50 to get that bonus and get into the action. Bet Online where the game starts. But 
Yeah, no, I mean, you see it right there where Joe Flacco, I mean, he doesn't really have time to get reset in the pocket. Vince, it's yeah. not just that he puts the guard on skates. Watch how fast he gets him back there. Yeah. Right? Look, Joe Flacco makes his initial read, and then boom. You know, his offensive guard's already in his lap, and he has to readjust, and the whole play breaks down from there. Yeah. You know, and- that's not something – I wouldn't call it a coverage sack, right? That normally when when the big guys are involved like that, it's a coverage play. I, I – there's a guy open right there at about the on the 40 right. yard marker you see on the right yeah, side. Yeah, it's cover two, and if right. he's able to reset here and, and get to the backside of this read, he's got that open guy on that hook route in between the two zone defenders. But Vince just doesn't let it happen, right? And that I see, I see multiple. Right, there's multiple guys open there, but you know how fat. And by the way, shout out whoever in the chat. I didn't see that Edelman's playing defensive. Is he? Was he in this game playing corner? Uh, yep, there he is. This underneath. Uh, Slot oh, right yeah. there to your left. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, it's it, it's not just the the bull rush, but it's how fast he got him back there. Yeah, absolutely. So more plays here, and that's brute strength with the bull rush and things like that, but it's also the get off. And here's another play where you just see insane get off for a guy this size. So they're gonna run this zone stretch play to the right. Vince is right there. Basically, He's lined play- up. So this is already two plays in. We've got two alignments. Yeah, so this is him basically playing 3-4 end. So he's playing five technique here, right? And he's right, uh, right over the uh, the right tackle and right guard. He, he's essentially playing the five technique straight up over the right tackle. And they're going to run a stretch play to his side, which I'm not so sure why Joe Flacco didn't check out this and run to the other side. Well, look, they're all built up there. They've got the tight end. They've got the fullback there. Yeah. This is just power on power. They yeah. think that they're going to yep. match him. Yep, this is this this is the uh, strong side, and, and Vince is playing strong side end. And look at how quickly he just gets into that gap, right? I mean, that's right. that's insane get off for anybody, but especially a guy his size. And we can see it here from the end zone angle, and you're going to see him kind of move out to that five technique spot, right, lined up right directly over the right tackle. And what they're doing with this zone concept is everybody's stepping out, and he, the guard, the right guard, is actually going to be the one that's going to try to block him. You cannot reach Vince Wilfork, right? Like this is right. This is a recipe for disaster trying to reach Vince Wilfork right there. And this Baltimore offensive line was this was a good offensive line back oh, yeah. there. You know, this is a good group. You can't reach Vince Wilfork like that. This is him playing all the way out five technique almost outside the tackle, and he's just able to shoot this gap. And at that size, moving at that pace, just forget about it. You're not going to be able to get overtake him and move him out of the way here. And I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, the guy he beats here, and I, I'm, I, I think there's probably on Baltimore's end a miscommunication between the the left guard and left tackle, but it looks like the or the right guard and right tackle. It looks like the right tackle. That's Michael Orr. It looks like they're trying to send him out to kind of get up and lead yeah. things down the field, get into the second level. The left guard he beats here clean is Marshall Yonda. Yeah, Marshall Yonda is a was he an All Pro? He must have been. Yeah, is yeah, a All Pro for years, seven-time yeah. All Pro. Yeah, and he beats him like a true freshman. You know, playing as like a fifth string. Watch how clean he gets off on the seven-time All Pro in his prime. I mean, Yonda's blocking him on the back shoulder. Yeah, that's just unreal. Yeah, so I think a big part of the you know the communication or the issue that breaks down here is Michael Orr. He's basically going to give Vince a, a forearm shiver on his way up to the second level, and the idea is that he's going to slow him down enough to help Marshall Yonda overtake the block, right? And it, his right. job is to kind of chip and then get to the second level. But Vince is such a 
a behemoth. He's such a monster that the normal chip that the tackle gives in this type of concept, it's not good enough, right? Like you can't just right. You you got to give him more than just a forearm. Like you you got to give him a real uh, punch here. He kind of tries to get him. See, you can see him try to kind of like hook his arm a little bit there. That's not good enough against Vince Wolford. He's just going to go right through that. Like you said, Marshall Yonda, one of the best to do it at his position uh, during his time in the NFL, a potential Hall of Famer, I, I think, at guard. So, oh, no, I was just going to say, so if you could pause it like right here, right there. It's really interesting how they set this up. And, and to me, this goes to like a bigger picture Patriots thing that we're talking a lot about with this team right now. Yeah. And they don't want guys to get to over pursue, get up the field, right? They just want to contain both against the run, against the pass. Look at this. They have four, they have three guys in here blocking. They have Ed Dixon, the tight end is 84, 44 yeah. is Vontae Leach, and then Yonda. They have three guys in there blocking. The Patriots get there with two because it's just discipline. I don't yeah. know why Vontae Leach doesn't chip Vince and goes to Chandler Jones instead. Maybe he just didn't want any of that smoke. I mean, Mark watch it. They, they yeah. double Chandler Jones here. Michael Orr skips up. Vince Wilfork, I mean, I obviously it's great get off, but then watch, he just stays home, right? Yeah. He knows he's I'm four yards in the backfield. I'll let him I'll let him come to me. And that's just a, a heady play, too. It's it's really you hear guys talk about this. If you shoot the gap too well, it's very easy to over pursue because you're not used to being in that spot. You're rarely back there that quick. He gets back there, the back's right in front of him. He knows exactly what to do. He says, You're gonna have to go backwards or run around me. Yeah, it's just a great it's just a great play. And Chandler Jones, too. Shout out to him here. Double block, still holding the edge, not giving the I think that's Ricky Williams, right? Uh, Yeah, it is not yeah. giving Ricky Williams anywhere else to go. And you're not going oh, around oh, Vince Wilfork. You're just not. Oh, old time Ricky Williams. That, that's Mark and Anderson, by the way. Not not. Oh, Chandler is it? Jones. Oh, I thought it was Chandler. Jones. Yeah. I thought I yeah. 95. Oh, yeah. Because Chandler Jones was drafted the next year. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. uh, Pre Chandler Jones, 95. All right. So I love this play because uh, this is another pass rush rep here on third and 15, third and 15. And he's on the field, right? Like that to right. begin with is just ridiculous. But what I love so much about this rep, Alex is the hand usage, a little arm over move from Vince Wilfork. This isn't just straight bull rush. Like we saw the bull rush earlier. This is a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more pizzazz. See that arm over move. And then he just swallows Joe Flacco. This was the the one sack he had on the game. And there's Julian Edelman playing corner again, by the way, in the slot. But I love the little pull forward arm over move, kind of like a snatch move there. And he has the arm over finisher. This is a little bit of nuance from big Vince. Like you don't, you're not just walking somebody back into the pocket. You're getting around the blocker here. Well, I would say let's just look, and you kind of touched on it before, but let's look at this big picture, what this is. Third and 15 in the first quarter, backed up inside the opponent's red zone. It's a three-man rush, and the nose tackle gets a sack. Yeah. You just don't see that. That doesn't make yeah. sense, right? Yeah. Right. They only, yeah, they only rush three here. And that's a pretty, all things considered, I would call that a pretty conservative rush pattern. Like, they're not, I don't think they stunted no. or anything, did they? Everybody just kind of no. moves. Yeah. Right? And he, you know, they have two, three guys to block him if they want. He blows right by, was it Matt Burke, I think, was their center that year? Yeah, Matt that's Burke, yeah. Right. Yeah, who, again, is another good offensive lineman. I think yeah. he was, was he ever an all-pro? Yeah, he was, once. Uh, and yeah, Vince gets right by him, three-man rush, your nose tackle gets a sack on third and 15. That's different. That yeah. you don't, not every team can do that. It allows you to do a lot of things different defensively when you have a guy in the middle who can do what what Vince is doing right here. 
Yeah, the first that first the contact, you can see that right arm kind of get in and under Burke there. That right. that kind of what establishes that momentum to then pull him. He like kind of pulls him forward and then goes over him like that. And I, I think Yonda is just like he's playing right guard and he's probably supposed to help a little bit more on this. But he's just like in amazement that Vince is right. in the backfield so quickly, right? Like well, it almost looked like it almost looks like Vince jukes him out a little bit. Yeah. I mean, this is just like ridiculous that a guy that size can move like that, right? I mean, this is right. this is silly. All right, uh, next play here. I believe that uh, this is the third down. So this one is kind of similar to the play we were talking about earlier on that zone stretch play. This time they try to trap him, and it's like he's right up over the nose, and, and they try to trap him and, and pull the guard. Uh, the other direction and you're not going to trap Vince Wilfork like forget it right you know he they, they try to get him here and it looks like the there's a, maybe a little bit of a, a pause or a miscommunication I'm going to fast forward because we have the end zone angle from the the right guard or, or the, excuse me the left guard seems like a little bit lost here right like I don't, I don't know exactly what he's looking at maybe he's worried about Mark Anderson there in the uh in the B gap but they're trying to pin him down, right? They're trying trying to trap him and then pull the guard through. And he's just too quick off the ball and too big. Like, there's no chance. And uh, this, this is another play like, you know, we talk so much about his play strength and his size, but just that initial snap quickness right there at 345 is just something else. Well, this is an interesting one, too, because I wonder if some of what throws him off, and let me just see kind of where all the blockers go. This is, I mean, this is classic. I don't want to say classic Belichick, but like this was Bel. This is like a great Belichick play here. Look who they have up on the line, inside of the the outside linebackers. Patrick Chung, the safety. Yeah. Right. And it yeah. almost to me kind of throws everything out. Like again, it's it's third down for the game. There's three minutes to go here. All of that. You right. have your nose tackle on the field. You have your safety up in the box. They could just do so. I'm just this whole defense was so flexible. But yeah, you watch Vince kind of went on the inside and it's kind of like that one earlier where well how do you block him here because normally in this situation the center is going to just be able to take the nose tackle out and they it looks like they try to pull they pulled somebody here and i think that that's where it missed maybe yeah, they're trying so they, to crack they're, him they're running power right patrick chung is is right. the puller is pulling the patrick chung and right. the idea is to just basically pin Vince Wilfork down with the guard and kind of just wash the whole play down and then fold it over, right, and pull the guard through. But the problem is, is that Vince, you know, he's not a normal nose tackle. Like, right. this get-off here is so quick that the guard and that little bit of hesitation, I think what really throws it off here is Anderson lining up here in the B-gap. He doesn't want to just let him go. Right. And, right. and so he's got a little bit of hesitation there and just that moment lapse of hesitation that allows Vince to just shoot this gap right through. If this play gets, gets off, like if Vince gets washed down, like they got this blocked, right. You know, the tight ends right. kicking out Ninkovich, the guard's going to pull through and hit 25 here. Patrick Chung. Look, there's and nobody in the middle of the field there. Down. They're going to go. Yeah. They're going to go. It's just a wrap. The other thing I'll say here, and this is again, what separates Vince. Sometimes those big guys, we see this. If you just knock them, you don't have to necessarily like block them traditionally, but if you just knock them, they'll fall over. They're not the best on their feet. And I, maybe that's what the guard's trying to do here. You see how he kind of gets into his ribs. Yeah. I wonder if he's just trying to push him over for his size. Vince had ballerina feet. He's so good on his feet. He's so sturdy. He's so athletic. You have to actually block him. 
you can't just try to knock him over, which I think is what their plan was there. Instead, he blows the play up. And I mean, this was, look at the situation here on the top. Oh, this yeah. Was, situation. Right. I, I know ultimately, because this is the um, Sterling Moore game, I yeah, know ultimately the Ravens get another shot, but yeah, this really should have been the game right here. Yeah, it, it just it's just crazy because like you said, you know, with the guard, the momentum of the play should wash out the nose. Like you don't right. you don't normally have to get a ton of the nose tackle here to get this play off, but he's just too big. Like he's just too big. He's just too strong here and he's already, you know, halfway by him too, which obviously doesn't help. But most of the time when you're in this position, you can just push him, right, and, and just kind of wash him down and get this playoff. But he's already two yards into the backfield by the time they even make contact on him. It's just a, a heck of a, a display of athleticism for a guy that size. I think this is a, another pass rush rep here, just pushing the pocket. So this is, I think, the next play. Yeah, late in the game, fourth down, late in the game. And he just – Again, walks the center right back into Joe Flacco, nearly sacks him, causes his throwaway, similar to that first pass rush rep. But the center, I mean, come on, like he just doesn't stand a chance. They they singled him a couple too many times in this game, right? Yeah. I mean, they just yeah. don't – you don't see guys nowadays a lot of the time that can walk NFL interior offensive linemen into the backfield this quickly. Like this is not, I mean, there's, this is two Mississippi, right. And he's in the backfield. It's, it's quite a play here by Vince. Yeah. And again, it, it, it strings together too. It's complimentary football. They're forced into an obvious passing situation here in, in a clutch spot because yeah. of the play that, you know, what he did on the play before. And I think he, he cited this two play sequence as like the, the plays he was most proud of or stood out most to him in his yeah. time with the Patriots or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, it's kind of like that first play we looked at. It's not just that he, he pushed him back on skates, which is impressive enough. It's not a coverage. It's not a coverage play. He gets him right back there. I mean, it's a fast rush. He gets on him like you'd see a speed rusher coming off the edge. Same amount of time. Yeah. And again, here you see the back coming out of the backfield on Gerard Mayo there underneath. It's got a step on Mayo. If Flacco's got a second, right? You know, that's probably where the ball goes here if Flacco has a, a second to, to do something with it, but he just doesn't. Here's another play that Vince pointed out uh, uh, in that sequence, right? Just two gapping, right. coming off the blocker. N not a tackle for loss or anything like that, but just a, another five technique. Like here he is playing end again, right? You know, he's out right. here, three, four end, coming out, just hold up the point of attack. The fullback even tries to get him out of the way a little bit. He just a movable object, but I want to get to the, sc the screen. So sorry that the, the video quality is not great on these, you know, pulling these old clips off of YouTube and stuff like God, that. It sucks that these are old. Like I, I, I feel like this wasn't that long ago. Yeah. It, it was a long time ago. Now I don't think there's anybody that anticipated screens better than Vince. And this is one of his highlights, right? You have this little tunnel screen and he just absolutely lights up the receiver his ability to, to to read screen and anticipate screen and how quickly he can react to it was insane. I mean, this is just such good block recognition. I, it must have been something that he saw, you know, with the footwork with his eyes, or maybe he's looking through to the quarterback and seeing the quarterback's kind of cadence. But, I mean, how do you read this any better than this? You don't. And then, obviously, the hit is – I mean, this is a top three – Vince Wilfork play, I think everybody thinks of the technique too. Again, for a defensive tackle to have that technique on a receiver in yeah. the field of play, that's not something he probably practiced much, but 
Yeah, you'll see it right here. You see the quick recognition. He pulls yeah. off the block, comes across. It goes to the athleticism, too. I think it's one thing to be able to read the screen, but to be able to read it, change direction as, as quick as he did, get himself in position, get his body in position. He has to turn his shoulders. I mean, that's a lot of movement in a very short period of time. For a guy that big to handle all those movements, again, it's it's rare. It's yeah. rare. You just don't see it. Yeah, it's it's insane. And I think the best part about all these clips is like we haven't shown a ton where he's just being big. You know what I mean? Like right. it's not like he's just a big dude and it was hard to move him and stuff like there's so much athleticism and there's so much explosiveness to his game as well. But that ability to read this screen is just ridiculous. And then here comes the the pick to wrap it up here against the Chargers is next in this sequence. And again, I remember this is almost like a little screen in the flat. This is not a screen. Like the running back is just running a check down pattern into the flat. And there's Vince just picking it off. Who has the faster 40 time outs, me or, or prime Vince Wilfork? I'm going prime oh, Vince Wilfork. Yeah, it's Vince. Vince, and, I mean, Vince was as fast as, you know, some tight ends or bigger running backs. Look at that. I mean, he's pulling away. Yeah. He's pulling away here. And then he got gas a little bit, but he, he yeah. pulled away. Yeah, yeah, he had that initial burst down, but it's just, look, he knows he's not going to get there most likely to the quarterback because the ball comes out so quickly, and he he just jumps this route. Like, it's just like a, a corner in an underneath zone, just like jumping the route, you know, as right. a 345-pound nose tackle. It's like the linebacker, you know, popping out and jumping out and uh, jumping a route underneath the defense. Like, this is exactly what this is, and uh, what a play this was. I remember this one watching it live. This was all sorts of fun. I mean, this I remember, was. I remember a lot of these watching these live. He was a fun player to watch. Yeah, absolutely. So th this recaps our Vince Wilfork love fest here. But I, I think the biggest thing that I wanted to, to show in this kind of play encapsulates it, I, I think, the most I, for a lot of people. This was not just a 400-pound a guy that, that took on blockers, right? Like, this right. was not just a big dude that couldn't be moved. And th this was a player that really had a ton of athleticism for his size. And uh, next stop, Canton, Alex? Should. Should be. We'll see. They're not should. great with defensive tackles, but we'll see. We'll should see. Be. All right. Well, that was a fun segment. We're going to keep doing those, and we're going to continue to uh, break down some of the Patriots' greats of yesteryear and looked at back at some of these throwback Thursdays. Uh, thanks for, for Vince to Vince Wolfork for giving us. Oh, we, we didn't have the butt fumble in there. That was the one. I mean, it's the same thing. We showed him pushing guys back a lot. But, yeah. We didn't have the butt yeah. fumble. That That's my fault. Oversight on my part, but everybody's seen the butt fumble like a thousand times. Right, so yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to show uh, some different things, but uh, that uh, does it for the Patriots portion of the show. Cause we have a very special CLNS guest and CLNS crossover here for the Boston Sports Minute. We're going to bring in Bobby Manning, the Patri uh, Patriots, the Celtics beat reporter for CLNS Media to talk about Game 6 during the Boston Sports Minute. We don't normally have guests for the Boston Sports Minute, so this is exciting, Bobby. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I'm very excited. Big fan of you guys' show, your coverage, Evan. Big inspiration to me, and uh, it's been great having Alex at the Garden the last couple weeks to chat and talk Celtics so I'm excited to do it here as well yeah absolutely so you can go and check out Bobby's work on clnsmedia.com as obviously and then 
on Celtics CLNS post game shows, uh, live reports from the garden, the whole nine yards there. Uh, Bobby's been out in San Francisco, which I'm very jealous about and been traveling with the team a little bit during the NBA finals as well. But Bobby, I, I think the number one question on everybody's mind and where I wanted to start with this, because before we get into the X's and O's and kind of break down this matchup in the game tonight, are the Celtics just gas, right? Because I think we were talking about this on Tuesday uh, during the Boston sports minute. If they're just gas, like if they've just played too many games, back-to-back series with game sevens against Milwaukee and, Oh, we lost Bobby. Well, he'll be back in the All second. Right, keep going. But that it, nothing else matters, right? Like it, it, nothing else matters in terms of uh, X's and O's or rah-rah speeches or anything like that. If the Celtics are just gassed, Alex, and this is just kind of the end of the line. Yeah, I want to save my take because I want to get get Bobby's reaction to it. I don't know if you got to text him or whatever. I I think what you are starting to see, though, some of this, and, and I think this goes to what you said, is, you know, when the Celtics, they had a chance to to close that Buck series out in probably less than seven games. Yeah. Uh, and they obviously didn't do that. I would even say the Miami series, even though they – oh, no, they were – yeah, the game six at home against Which Miami. one were they down 3-2? One they were up 3-2. They were, were down 3-2 in Milwaukee, but they had game six right. at home against Miami to wrap up the series and then went seven. So I I would say in both, even if they you know were up three, even if they were down 3-2 in one of them, I think they had chances to win those series in less than seven games. And at the time, I, I think the, you know, I think a lot of fans were eager to kind of just wish it away as, well, they still won the series. What does it matter? Yeah. This is what it matters. Yeah. Now you get to this point and you've just played so much basketball in such a condensed period of time versus the Warriors, who I think only got past game five once, I believe, yeah. throughout these playoffs. So I, I think you're kind of seeing that that play out where I don't want to say the Celtics are poorly conditioned, but they have simply played so much more than the Warriors have over the last two months. Um, so I'll let, I'll, I'll let Bobby answer the, the fatigue question first before I give my take. Yeah. Bobby, how worried are you about the fatigue thing? Can you hear us? I don't know if you can hear We got us. you, Bobby. We, you're good. Just talk. I got, I, yeah, I think you okay. guys can hear me. I can't hear you. Put your head. You're not wearing your headphones. Put your headphones in. <laughs> he was wearing headphones before, right? Yeah, I, I thought he was too. Well, we'll figure it out, but all right. Uh, the fatigue thing definitely does worry me. Sometimes uh, the, the the software here has some trouble when we, we pull in multiple people. We'll, we'll figure it out with Bobby. But, yeah, right. the fatigue thing definitely worries me. I also wanted to ask him uh, about the, uh, the Andrew Wiggins aspect of this series as well. But I'll uh, just give your fatigue take until Bobby gets back. Well, no, that, that is my fatigue take. I have a bigger picture take on kind of what they need to do going forward, but that is my fatigue take. It's This is what they get for, yeah. you know, early in that Miami series. Was it game game one or game two? Whatever it was, they threw away for not being able to close things out against Milwaukee at home. They, 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 there's, they've played extra games to their own fault. They, yeah. They've had games they could have won that they've lost, and now you're seeing it catch up to them here. And I do think, and not just physically, I think mentally they're gassed too. This is a very high-pressure situation they've been in. For weeks now, I think that takes a lot out of you as well. Yeah, look, it's funny because I was at game six against Miami and I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm not so worried about game seven in Miami. Like, I think the Celtics are the better team and usually in game sevens, the better team wins out, right? Like, that's usually by that point in the series, the better team comes to the top. I wasn't worried about them advancing the finals at that point. It just felt like 
they really could have used it. And at the time it was Robert Williams, right? He was really right. kind of the, the poster of it all of saying, you know, Rob's knee definitely needs a minute. Marcus Smart was really banged up at that point of that series as well. And it just, it felt like a huge opportunity lost to get some rest. The Warriors, I believe had already wrapped up their series at that point against Ma- the Mavericks. So they yeah. were already at home on the couch with their feet up resting uh, before the, the uh, finals kicked off and the Celtics played another game and it was not just any other game. It was a game seven of the Eastern conference finals on the road, which is obviously a ton of energy put into a game like that. And hopefully it's not catching up to the Celtics. What's your, what's your big picture take? Well, no, well just, just to something you just said, cause I want to see if we can stall and get Bobby back here to, to, to what you just said, you know, we didn't think they were going to make the finals and, you know, just wanted them to win the seat. Right. I think that that's exactly the point. Cause I think they might've had that mentality. Yeah. They haven't been through this before. It's just win, and, and ultimately you want to win at all costs, but until you get to this point, I think it's kind of hard. Cause I, I underestimated at the time too. This is me. This is you. This is fans. I think this is the team. Right. You want to win the series, you win the series. I think when you go through this a couple of times, like the warriors have, yeah. you start to understand the bigger picture of it of, well, it's not just winning the series. It's imperative. We win it in as few games as possible. We don't want to gift the other team games. Even if we think we can win it in seven, it's, it's still going to catch back up to us. Right. And I think yeah. that's what you're seeing here where the Celtics, again, those two seven game series that probably didn't need to be seven game series are starting to catch up to them. Bobby, we got you. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. There we go. All right. So you, you've been out, you were out at practice yesterday, I'm sure Bobby, and you, you've seen the team and heard a lot from the team over the last couple of days. Are you worried about the fatigue factor of the long playoff run coming to an end here? No, and I, I don't, I don't like the fatigue talk. That worries me that that was, I said the F word flying around after, after game five, I, that this team's had a short rotation all season. They haven't been a team that's rested much. That's had depth uh, to get, Tatum and Brown spells here. I, it almost felt like an excuse to me after game five. I, I, I don't know why you may went there. That's not his style typically. Um, so they have, well, the, is it true? Do you think it's true? I think in that game specifically, he may cut down the bench to a level that hurt them in the fourth quarter. Okay. I don't think this is a culmination of a long playoff run. I mean, of course they're banged up. They've been through a ton of minutes here, but so have the Warriors. So have, pretty much any team that makes it this deep in the playoffs. And these are guys in their young, low 20s. The concern is that Ime felt Grant, Derek White, and uh, Peyton Pritchard were unplayable in the fourth quarter. So you effectively had to put your starters in at the 10-minute mark and push them the whole rest of the way. And that's when you saw the air balls. The missed free throws were weird for sure. Um, this hasn't been a great free throw team in the postseason as we've seen but uh, that was a next level missing 10 and a 10 point loss so all those things are concerning but I'm I don't I, I'm not just going to chalk it up to them being tired I, like that just doesn't make sense to me given what we've seen from them this year well so then what are you chalking it up to I think it's the fatal flaw of their team the decision making and the lack of one great ball handler facilitator to really calm them down when runs get away from them there and the worrisome thing if they lose here isn't that they blew it or they gave it away or they're not going to have another chance to get it done here in coming years. It's that their plan right now as a roster, as a team, is putting the ball in Brown and Tatum's hands to be these playmakers, these facilitators for the entire offense. And 
you've seen great growth this year, certainly with Tatum, but in key moments, are they going to be too inconsistent in that role that you're going to be this really streaky offense that gets stagnant at times and at other times is whipping the ball around, making magic happen on that end? I mean, they're the top assist rate team in the playoffs, which is pretty impressive given that formula that they're using. But we've seen these stretches, especially in fourth quarters, where they completely capsize as an offensive unit. And you have all these ball handlers. You can probably count six guys on this roster who have the pedigree to make plays, but not one of them steps up in these big moments. And I think the most worrisome thing of all is that they're all talking about their different strategies, whether it's Brown pushing the pace or you see what Tatum's doing, being more methodical and smart begging for the ball, asking, you know, to help out in those circumstances. Yeah. It's like you have three cooks in the kitchen and none of them can make the meal and, Again, it doesn't give me a lot of hope that they're going to be able to get this done right now. It's, well, it's so kind of crazy. Ask you this. Just because you talk about the decision-making and, and how sometimes they're so electric as an offense, after game four, and I, maybe I wasn't watching for it as closely as I should have, but after game four, a couple guys, Eme and a couple players, talked about the lack of movement off the ball. And, and so, that you know, that kind of – I went back, I looked, and, and there were some instances where they really weren't moving off the ball. And then I think, all right, well, in game five, they're all aware of this. They're going to fix it. And I don't know how many possessions where the ball handler comes up to big, whoever it is, Rob or Al sets the screen. And if the screen works, great. They go to the basket or kick it out. If the screen didn't work, you have two guys in the corner just standing there. You have one guy on the wing just standing there. And it essentially becomes two on two. Is is that something you've noticed? Why do you think they're not moving off the ball as much as they were earlier in the playoffs? Is it something you think they can get back to? I, I don't know why. I, I really don't. And I think part of it's that they get clogged up in the off in the half court. Like it's not a place where they've moved well this season. I think the turnaround was when they started turning up their pace and getting to the next level as a defense allowed them to get out on the run a lot more often. In the half court this year, you can go back to their worst stretches in the winter. They were not a team that moved actively off the ball. Warriors, of course, the opposite of that, just how they function offensively. They're more of a strict pick-and-roll team that doesn't have outlets at the basket, really, when you think of Rob in his state right now and Al, who really hasn't been a rim threat all year. Uh, the drivers are getting cut off at the rim, so I think that's certainly part of it. Like I don't think they view the rim as an area where they're going to be successful right now, given the help defense that's there for the Warriors. And you're effectively just trying to produce jump shots, which with this team has been a formula for success. Like I think it's underrated how great of a three-point team they've been through this whole run because they produced high-quality looks, uh, especially the secondary shooting options. But when they go cold... You can end up with situations like the end of game four there where you take nine straight jump shots to close the game and you only make two. Uh, So it's not a great formula for success. You need, I know we talk about the three levels, like the rim, the mid-range, and the three. You can do it with rim and three. You don't need the mid-range, but you cut out the rim and you're just relying on the three like they are right now. I think the Bucks looked at them and said, we'll live and die by the Celtics shooting the three, and they ultimately died. But the Warriors have kind of done the same here, and they've lived, and they're right on the verge of a championship because of that strategy. Bobby, Alex and I, off the air, on the air, we've gone back and forth all year about Marcus Smart. And Alex is... Team Marcus, I am eating a little bit of crow in this playoff run, I'll admit it, but I've been critical of Marcus in the past and his propensity to just want to shoot all the time. Like, it does feel like sometimes he he just takes too many shots, but you were mentioning earlier, 
about the fil- uh, facilitating and not having a great ball handler to facilitate. He's a point guard, right? Like it isn't so moving forward with this team and I'm not saying trademark is smart, but I think there is a faction of Celtics fans and I'm sort of in this boat that would like to see them have a Rajon Rondo prime Rondo kind of facilitator at that point guard spot instead of Marcus Smart. The defense is awesome. The hustle is awesome. He does get hot sometimes from three and and he can score at times, but where do you stand right now on Marcus's fit? And as you mentioned, Tatum and Brown being primary ball handlers and not having that true pass first point guard at their disposal. Well, there's some pitfalls to their, their, system as a team like how they're trying to produce because they're going defense first and obviously smarts a huge cog in that system and guides them and calls out plays and allows them to rack up the amount of stops that they can on that end and you know both ends of the floor are connected so when they're rolling defensively they can really turn that into offense and that's what they want to do there are some issues with him offensively though like how often have we seen in this series passing sequences end with him shooting the ball game four especially there at the end and and it's never a great result when these long passing sequences end with him launching a three I I don't I've been disappointed with him in this series I really have Tatum's gotten a lot of the flack right I think Smart should be right up there with him because he's taking risks like I see Tatum taking the steps to protect the ball more and trying to be more careful and attempting to clean up with this mess of an offense that they've had throughout this series. I see Smart taking more risks, whether it was game one, him going behind the back into that layup, and he made it, and you're like, great, they win the game there, but what are you doing? Last game, he's throwing lob passes into the post. You have this turnover issue, and you're throwing the ball from half court into the post over bodies. There was another play where he got downhill in, I believe it was game four, off a a misdirection with Tatum and he had a wide open lane of the basket and he just kind of threw it to Rob with Rob being tightly covered by the big man. The decision-making from this team right now, it's like they're blind out there sometimes on these plays. Like they're not seeing where the help's coming from. I think they're baffled sometimes by the different looks that the Warriors throw at them. And it is disappointing, Evan, that Smart's not the guy to solve this. I asked them after, I believe it was game three, you know, what he can do, what Derek can do to solve this. Cause they're the point guards, right? They're the, yeah. You would assume the best ball handlers on this team. And again, they go back what I said at the beginning of our segment here. I worry that these guys don't necessarily trust each other to um, go all in on that role. Like Tatum's obviously going to have the ball the most game four. I felt like they lost Brown down the stretch after a sensational start, uh, you know, there's sequences, I think, where they lose smart and don't defer to him when that would be the smart thing to do in some of these late game circumstances, because I still trust him the most as the steadiest ball handler. But when you see some of the lapses he's had late in this series, I think trust sometimes becomes an issue with this offense, whether it's trusting open shooters to make their shots and sometimes taking it themselves. That was the problem earlier in the year, I would say, more than now. Uh, but now I think guys deferring to the other ball handlers on the roster getting off the ball, which Tatum had some success with after halftime when they went on that run, and you know, deferring to the other ball handlers and letting other guys who are getting res- less pressure make a play, that to me I think is what makes them more inconsistent than anything else. And some people look at Ema and say, call a play, call a play, like you know, call timeout, slow this thing down. But he really doesn't want to do that. And it doesn't make sense, but I get him wanting to be consistent in this – theme this year of really letting these guys 
run a fleet free falling offense, not being the coach who's on them every single play with play calls. And again, slowing the offense down, they want this to be fast. So there are definitely spots where he should be stepping in with some play calls, I think with a feel for the game. But I think an underrated story in this series so far is that Curry's had a better feel for the game from the sideline than Udoka has. I, and and I, part of it too, Ime was asked about what you just said about, you know, not calling plays and that's who he's been all year and he doesn't want to deviate from that. And I respect that you mentioned though, kind of working through the doubles and getting the ball to the open player. I, I, I think part of the reason they're here and part, and part of the reason they get out of this or part of the way they would get out of this. Right. I actually thought game one, Jason Tatum was excellent. I really yes. did. I know he only scored whatever it was, 12, 13 points, but he had 13 assists. And if you go back to the end of that Miami series, Miami in game six started doubling him. And he, he really had trouble with it. He they just, just uh, you know, a straight-up double. On the catch, they're blitzing a second defender, and he seemed very flustered. He turned the ball over a number of times. He was forcing up shots over two defenders, all of that. And that worried me. He came back in game one for the finals, and he handled it very well. He was a distributor. He was letting other people make plays. He was finding the open man. Guys were hitting their shots. I And I thought, coming away from that game, because a lot of people said – wow, the Celtics won without Jason Tatum scoring. Like what, you know, what's going to happen when he starts scoring? And I remember thinking, well, no, if he does just what he did, they're in good shape. And some of the narrative too became, you know, from people who maybe don't understand the game as deeply. I, I think some of the narrative became Jason Tatum had a bust of a game in his first finals appearance. That is an incorrect analysis, but that was certainly out there. And I don't know, consciously, subconsciously, whatever, I almost feel like he's taken that to heart because he's kind of regressed in terms of how he's handled the double team, bad passes out of the double, putting up shots early or shooting through the double, all of that. He's gotten back to it at times. And look, if he's going to move the ball, guys have to hit the shots, right? Late in game four, I actually thought he handled the double well. Marcus Smart misses two open threes. What are you going to do? He has to hit the shot. But to me, if they want to come back in this, Jason Tatum, they need game one Jason Tatum back. As good as he looked in game four at times and he had that big scoring total, or was it game five or whatever it was that he lit it up, right? I think they need game one Jason Tatum back to win this series. That's not the whole thing. Guys then need to hit their shots when he finds them open. But I think the way they beat this Warriors team is with Jason Tatum being a distributor. Yeah, for sure. And to be a distributor, I think you have to get to your spots on the floor, which he's he's really struggling with. Again, I'll give him credit for that game one, just like you. I'm not getting on him because he's not scoring and he's not giving you the 46 from game six against Milwaukee. You're going to play the game how you're covered, and they are selling out on him, just like a lot of teams do. So I think that distorts his stats and makes it tough to evaluate him just based off numbers. You, you look at his right. process, and he is trusting guys. His passing is at another level from earlier in the year. Like he would not have been capable of having a 13 assist game during the winter. So you're going to give this team win or lose credit for developing him through the whole course of this year to where you can have this level of an impact on a game without scoring. And even game four where they lost, where he was struggling in that game to shoot too. Like you see him chasing that loose ball down to the bench, into the backcourt. You see his defense through this run, the rebounding, seven a game. Uh, the other areas of the game where he's impacting have been significant. Uh, but right now it's can you get to the spots on the floor to facilitate most effectively? And you see him at the rim right now. When you're struggling to make it the rim like he is, I think that limits you immensely as a playmaker. And that has over the last 
you know, three or four games here where he's piled up the misses in there. His two-point percentage is just abysmal right now. And so you can pass out on the perimeter. You can pass in some pick and rolls outside. But if you're being forced to the half-court line, you're losing clock. You're not able to get into these long passing sequences that they need to get quality looks. And again, watch tonight because you're going to see it tonight in stretches. You just know you are. They're sometimes starting their sets with like 13 on the shot clock. It was a play, I forget what game it was, where he had Curry in the mismatch and he spun out toward half court as the clock was going under five. So he's at half court with like four seconds left on the shot clock. And it's just one of these instances where you're like, are they just running blind on offense right now? Like, do they just sometimes lose feel for the clock, for where the defense is, for where their teammates are? And you hear them too talking about spacing off the ball, as you said, the movement. Um, Alex, it's not there. Guys are getting on top of each other, and it's making it even easier for the Warriors to collapse on Tatum. So there have been times in this series where I think Tatum's to blame, but especially last game, he had no help whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, right now, their shooters aren't making shots. Their secondary ball handlers aren't being reliable. Guys aren't making themselves available at times. I think that's Brown's biggest issue is sometimes just standing in the corner and not making himself available. You don't see him setting screens like Tatum does to make himself available sometimes when he gets off the ball. I mean, guys just need to do more right now uh, to make themselves outlets for Tatum because... Listen, like you said, Alex, Tatum's doing his job as a passer. He's reading those doubles. He's drawing extra defenders, and then he's whipping the ball out. And that's all he can really do sometimes when the defense is stacking up against him. All right, Bobby, before we let you go, give us a prediction for tonight, a prediction for the series. Uh, Do you think the Celtics extend this to seven? And uh, how do you think the Celtics best get out of this? You know, how how do they get the, the win in the series? What's the number one thing? Grant's got to wake up. I mean, we remember he saved the Celtics against Milwaukee with that massive game seven. I'm stunned he's been a no-show in these finals because the Warriors are smaller. I think the bigger teams give him issues sometimes at his position. There's really no excuse why he can't even get into the post for an easy bucket here or there against them and, you know, make some of those dribble drives where he's grown as a playmaker in his own right. So he's got to be out there. Yeah, I mean, we talk about Tatum's struggles. The story of the season has been Grant making himself an outlet for Tatum, a guy that he can hit again and again on the opposite side for threes or whatever he's able to produce once he catches that ball. Uh, So he's got to be a big part of the rotation tonight, I think. He needs to get a shot or two early to feel involved and confident and you know, not get lost in green going after him or some of the other things that have probably affected the Celtics mentally here. I don't feel great about them winning this series, But their defense, I think, is played at an underrated high level, holding the Warriors, I think, to under 100 points per 100 in the half court in every game now in this series. Uh, So they have figured out Curry a little bit in this last game. That was underrated. Uh, I think there's just going to be a high intensity. And, uh, again, this team's been at its best when you've felt at your worst about them. So I, I feel good about this going seven. Going back out to San Francisco, though, and again, this Warriors team that has all this experience, that has guys stepping up in different spots, whether it's Porter, Green, uh, Thompson last game I thought was great. There's an intangible thing with Golden State that I feel like I underrated because I came into the series saying these aren't the old Warriors. They're more than beatable. But this hasn't been the Celtics just shooting themselves in the foot and falling all over themselves like I felt like it was in the Heat series where the Heat did not give a good effort. Uh, to compete in that series, but still took it seven. The Warriors, I think, have adjusted. 
uh, ran different lineups, gotten contributions from a bunch of different players, and their defense, there's a reason it was number two in the league right up there with the Celtics, and they forced a lot of these mistakes on the Celtics. So I think the Warriors ultimately end up taking this in seven. That's where I'm at right now. Well, I I like that you gave the Warriors some credit because I think a lot of people around here and we, as Boston sports fans, we, we tend to get into that, right? Where it's all our team's fault, right? Like it's all the Celtics fault that they're in this position. And I've read a lot of things, not to call out anybody that you work with and Alex works with down there, but I've read a lot of things about how the Celtics have blown this series. And it's like the Warriors are the Warriors. Like that's a really good team that they're playing up against. And there might be some things that they could have gone back and done differently, certainly uh, at home in game four with the, you know, the two, one lead that uh, hopefully that game, you would have hoped that game would have gone a little bit differently, but all in all, Steph Curry is, is still fantastic. Andrew Wiggins. He stole game four. I mean, that was, that was the best Steph Curry game I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, He was incredible. Uh, And the Celtics made mistakes down the stretch. We talked about the jump shots they were taking, but coming out of that game, that was more of a story of what Curry did in that moment than what the Warriors did. And the Celtics would have been up 3-1 at that point. So that was huge. Uh, the Celtics did not respond well to it last game. Uh, and the Warriors, I think, have had more responses in this series as a whole. But, again, they're healthy for the first time all season, effectively, Golden State. Yeah. And that's an underrated storyline coming to this as well. I talked to Steve Kerr about that yesterday, and I was like, you know, what's with all this experimenting in the finals? You don't think a coach is just going to be trying all these different lineups at this stage of the season? And he said, you know, we didn't have Peyton since round two. We didn't have Iguodala since round one. Uh, yeah. All these different guys that have stepped back into the fold, and they've had a lot of contributors here, and they're deeper. I think that is a legitimate advantage that they have, and their experience I think Ime's probably going to regret coming into this series, and people loved it, saying the experience is overrated. But it has come into play in many spots here. Remember game one? Celtics were hitting everything in that game. They win it. That flowed in the game, too. First quarter, the Celtics were excellent. And Green just kind of sticks his chest in the Tatum, starts some of those antics, gets Boston a little rattled. And I think those are just some of the intangible things a championship team has. And he mucked up the series in a way that I think has disrupted the Celtics ever since. Well, that doesn't not not real optimistic here, Bobby. All right, I, we had you on. They got to. I said they're going to win tonight. All right, fair Heaven's enough. a coin flop. Fair enough. So there, there's an official Bobby Manning prediction: the Celtics win Game Six, Game Seven, not so much. Bobby, we appreciate you coming on. A lot of fun. Make sure uh, to plug where everybody can follow you and, and follow your Celtics coverage tonight. Yeah, at real Bob Manning on Twitter. Uh, all our videos out of the garden are at Celtics CLNS. Uh, and of course do post game at least one more time on uh, CLNS media and Celtics all access. So go check out those YouTube channels and um, we're doing a dome theory right after this dome theory podcast going live at two fifteen with Mo DeKeel and he'll get into some of the X's and O's former video coordinator in the NBA and uh, just see where it's going wrong for the Celtics offensively right now. Yeah. I love Mo. He's a great follow. He teaches me a ton about the game. So that will be really awesome. And make sure to go check out Bobby's coverage on Celtics CLNS uh, throughout the rest of the NBA finals. Hopefully two more games of Bobby's coverage for the Celtics in the NBA finals. But for us here on Patriots beat, We'll be back on Tuesday, Q&A edition of the show on Tuesday afternoon. We'll do a Boston Sports Minute. We'll either pour one out for the Celtics or be celebrating, but it'll be exciting (laughs) nonetheless on Tuesday. So until next time, signing off for Alex Barth, our special guest here, Bobby Manning. I'm Evan Lazar. Thanks for watching, everybody, and we'll see you next week.